0: Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences.
1: A very good evening to you. Welcome uh, to the LSE. Uh, if you're not normally here, as I would say, if you are normally here, it's good to see you as well. This is a European Institute School of Public Policy public event, and it's going to consider the book here, published by Stefan de called Inside the Deal, How the EU Got Brexit Done. I'm sure the choosing of that title must have given Mm. the publishers some pleasure. (laughs) Um, I should say first, my name's Tony Travers. I'm the Associate Dean of the School of Public Policy and a professor in the Government Department. I'm very happy to welcome Stefan de and our long-term friend, Vicky Price, an alumna of the school, to the LSE today. And I welcome all of you, of course. Now... What's the event about? Well, the event, of course, is, as so much still is in Britain today, about Brexit and its aftermath. But Stefan de Rink was a close aide to Michel Barnier, who, as you will all know, was the chief negotiator from the European, the EU side of the Brexit deal. And therefore, Stefan, as his chief of staff, close aide to Michel Barnier, had a ringside seat in the Brexit negotiations. And in the book, which we're about to hear from him about, he's going to discuss the way the EU approached this issue and the way the UK responded, how the deal was done, how the European Commission and the European Union held the line, a rules-based institution dealing with the UK government, which I think it's fair to say went into the negotiations with perhaps a light, less clear idea than when they came out, but we'll see. For those who are using Twitter, the hashtag for today's event is Hashtag LSE Brexit. Um, I'd like you to put your phones on silent if you haven't already. The event is being recorded, and so if you do want to ask a question, there'll be an opportunity to do that soon. Just know that it's going to be recorded. There'll be an opportunity for Q and A, including for those who are watching or listening, I should say, online, so you too can have a question answered as well. So I just say a little bit more about our two guests, Stefan Derink is currently head of the European Commission's representation in Belgium and is a visiting professor at the University of Leiden having previously worked as senior advisor as I said earlier to Michel Barnier who was the European Union's chief negotiator for Brexit Vicky Price is chief economic advisor for the Center for Economics and Business Research Many of you, will, or some of you may have been here, when she launched her own book, not long long ago, called Women Versus Capitalism, Why We Can't Have It All in a Free Market Economy. And indeed, Vicky will be back next month to launch a new book about economics, but she can say a word about that later. That's on the 7th of March. So, enough from me. Uh, This issue remains highly topical, both in the EU and in the United Kingdom. The question of not only how Brexit happened and how the deal was done, but how it continues to unfold in the UK and across Europe, and indeed beyond that as well. The book will be available if you want a copy to buy it afterwards, and Stefan Derink has kindly agreed to stay on the stage here to sign it for those of you who would like a signed copy. But we'll just begin the evening with a presentation from Stefan Derink.
2: Thank you very much.
3: Well, thank you. Professor Travers, Tony, thank you also for giving me the honor of speaking at the London School of Economics. And thank you, Vicky, for accepting to be a discussant. I'm speaking tonight in my capacity as author of this book, Inside the Deal, and how the EU got, got Brexit done. And I'm not speaking in my capacity as an EU official. So the book came out a week ago. It covers the period 2016, the June referendum until early 2021. Or until Christmas Day 2020, when we basically presented, or Michel Barnier on Christmas Day presented, a draft trade and cooperation agreement to the 27 ambassadors of EU member states in Brussels. So, I do not speak as an EU official. I speak as an author. But having pronounced those caveats, I think you will, you may want to agree with me that the period since June 16 till early 21 gives us sufficient material for a for a conversation tonight. So. Um, A week ago, it was three years since the UK left the European Union, and the decision by the UK to take back control of its sovereignty rather than pool that sovereignty with other EU member states and with EU institutions was, of course, a momentous one, with many ratifications to this day, and particularly in the UK, where the topic is certainly more topical, I would say, than, than in the EU member states. Now, it will not surprise you that I see pooling sovereignty in the EU as a political act that makes a country stronger and more influential. Certainly, it makes relationships between neighbours, between neighbouring member states, easier by organising free movement of people, by organising frictionless economic exchanges within a common institutional framework. And that's certainly an important point for the relationships between Ireland and the United Kingdom. So it's not just a point about labour markets and economic efficiency, trade and the export of goods more generally the eu is a political system searching for a consensus between member states in light of common policy challenges or in light of a need to respond to shocks such as the pandemic or the russian war in ukraine today and as an eu member state one is part of that constant deliberation to search for that consensus and to search for what i would argue are ultimately construction of the common good for for the European continent. And a country that puts itself outside of that club puts itself, of course, in a different position. It puts itself in a situation where it meets a European Union that negotiates in its own interests, which is a very different situation, which is what we always meant when we said the UK is now a third country, or has decided to become a third country. But statements by some British politicians, or at least based on their public statements during negotiations, seemed to somehow express surprise at times that the UK had to bargain with the EU from the outside, rather than continue to influence the EU from the inside. And that's certainly something that I discuss also in this book. Now, the focus of the book is the Brexit story seen from Brussels, or told from Brussels. And it's a very different tale from the Brexit story told in London. The book discusses the unity of the 27 governments and the EU institutions as its main strength during these negotiations. And I have a number of factors which I summarize or want to summarize here by way of introduction of our conversation on how to explain that unity of 27 governments, European Parliament and European Commission during the Brexit Mm -hmm. negotiations. And the first one for me would be the primary factor, which was that that unity emerged from a sense of high political responsibility of EU leaders. And by that, I mean national governments, national prime ministers, people like the German chancellor, the French president, the Dutch minister president, and other leaders in the European Council. Because in 2016, the EU came out of many crises. The euro crisis had been incredibly divisive. Grexit was the issue of the day in July 2015, for luckily avoided. Migration was a very divisive crisis between member states And those national government leaders, what I call EU leaders, many of whom are also confronted with anti-EU or Eurosceptic parties in their domestic public debates, saw in Brexit yet another risk for an existential challenge to the European Union and wanted to avoid that. People like Matteo Salvi in Italy, as I quote in a book, said after the referendum, Italy should not be the last country to leave the sinking ship. So this led certainly to a very firm stand on the side of the EU that membership had to matter and that a country that was a member of the EU obviously had more benefits than a country that decided to leave. Beyond that sense of political responsibility, I describe in the book, especially in the early chapters, the co-construction of a negotiation mandate between us and the Commission and the 27 governments, also with the support of the European Parliament. It was a co-creation And that is not the usual way sometimes that the EU institutions work. There was a lot of going back and forth interaction between officials in the council, officials in the commission, national diplomats to co-create that mandate, which led in April 2017, a third factor for me in terms of unity, a very crystal clear negotiation mandate. General, but based on very clear principles, notably the integrity of the single market, safeguarding the autonomy of EU decision-making without the UK post-Brexit and a number of other principles. And it's interesting to note, in my view, that this is also a trade-off, because people realized that the UK leaving the EU would be a short-term cost for the European Union. But the choice was made to safeguard the internal market, to safeguard the autonomy of EU decision-making and to create those clear principles because medium-longer term, without those principles, the costs would have been higher. The Commission's transparency and inclusive method of working with 27 governments and the European Parliament certainly supported also the unity throughout these talks. It was there. We practiced that method from the start. In the book, I describe how Michel Barnier, in October 16, his first weeks in office, went to see the Dutch government, the Romanian government, the Irish government, I think uh, he saw the French president also in that first few hectic weeks of, of traveling, basically, and, and go go around and see prime ministers and co-construct that mandate that then came forward in April 2017. There are 21 pictures in the book from my iPhone, mostly. <laughs> and the first one is of Michel Barnier talking to the German chancellor. And so that's an illustration of what I just said, that that symbiotic relationship between EU leaders and Michel Barnier to construct that mandate. Here he's talking to Theresa May. oh, uh, to excuse me, to Angela. <laughs> about the first three topics that had to be dealt with: citizens' rights, Northern Ireland, Ireland, and the financial settlement. This is a picture from later, but this is most of the Dutch government with Michel Barnier explaining with his deputy negotiator to most of the Dutch government ministers attending, with Mark Rutte on the other side, the minister president of the Netherlands. This picture is not in the book, by the way. The other three are part of the book. So before moving on, let me just remind ourselves, as I say, I look at this issue from the perspective of the EU. But the UK went through a very difficult political period in those same months. While this was going on in the EU, the co-creation mm-hmm. of the mandate, the first months of the referendum here were characterized by can the government notify, should parliament agree the notification, media, certain media spoke about enemies of the people, mm-hmm. betrayal was part of what some media also advertised in terms of how the country or how some in, in the UK were allegedly dealing with, with this Brexit, with this departure from the European Union. So it was a very different atmosphere, of course, here compared to what was happening on the EU side. And Theresa May then also called elections after notifying, not before notifying, expecting that she would win a comfortable majority and, in her words, make a success of Brexit, which of course also did not happen. And that's also a key factor that runs throughout the book, how we from our side had to deal with a difficult political situation for the UK government as well. Um, by the way, many people back then thought in Brussels they must be uncorking the champagne, our government is weaker, has been denied the majority by the voter. The opposite was actually true, I argue in the book. And we had actually wished for a strong government majority, for either party, to be able to negotiate with a strong partner on this crucial issue. My final point on the unity comes back to the negotiations and the sequencing of the talks. I just showed by Nia's three points with Angela Merkel. We avoided talks on the future relationship and focused on the divorce settlements, and the important point there for me was that the EU team managed to deliver on what member states wanted for citizens' rights, mostly, 90%, with exception of some family reunion rights and some other issues. The financial settlement we managed to deliver, and that created certainly a high amount of trust from the 27 governments and from these 27 diplomats in the European Commission as a negotiator. The unity was already crucial at that point during the divorce negotiations and even more in 2018 during a volatile British political situation for us to practice patience in these negotiations. Without such unity, patience would have been certainly much more difficult. And I think patience from our side for the UK to make up its mind on what it wanted or patience to avoid that the UK would impose part of the economic cost of Brexit on us in the EU were certainly important factors for us. And maybe before moving on, let me make one more point on this, because the unity of 27 governments gave us, of course, a more comfortable position than UK negotiators, at least until December 19, when Boris Johnson won then a decisive majority in the elections. Because UK negotiators had a divided parliament, on on, on whose behalf they were negotiating. And I think those structural political differences are important and probably too easily forgotten by people who criticize UK negotiators. Let me move to a different point. In the book, I state, to the surprise perhaps of some, that that for us it was easier to negotiate the future relationship with Boris Johnson in 2020 than with Theresa May in 2018. And one could perhaps attribute this to Johnson's majority in Westminster or to the fact that by that time in 2020, Brexit was done, an issue Brexit was not done, which certainly plagued Theresa May and her negotiation approach. But I look at the story from Brussels, however, and from Brussels, looked at from Brussels, I argue that the fundamental reason why negotiations with Boris Johnson and his team, David Frost, was easier because they accepted that leaving the single market and leaving the customs union would lead to trade obstacles that did not exist between EU members. And this was something that Theresa May did not want to accept. And she wanted to change, basically, our mandate, which said if you leave the single market and the customs union, inevitably, there is friction to trade because you don't accept the same obligations as an EU member. Now, we had difficult discussions with Boris Johnson, to be clear, and David Frost, his negotiator, in particular on the level playing field. David Frost initially contested that a minimal free trade agreement would have to include level playing field commitments and robust safeguards for the level playing field. Because in his words, as a sovereign equal of UK EU, those issues did not have their place in such a free trade agreement. My book has a specific chapter on the level playing field that explains that it would have been impossible from our side to negotiate any free trade agreement without having robust safeguards to the level playing field. Indeed, the first conversation I document in the book of Barnier with one of the government leaders, Mark Rutte, and it was clear from October 16 that the level playing field was a deal breaker for many national governments. So that was clear for us already in the first months after the referendum. But the discussions with Frost and Johnson were somewhat easier because they accepted that paradigm that underlies our mandate of having a free trade agreement and therefore inevitable friction that did not exist between EU members. In those difficult discussions on level playing field and also on fisheries with Johnson's government, there was often a confrontational rhetoric, somewhat echoing May's approach before negotiations started, the Lancaster House speech, January 17, no deal better than a bad deal. Uh, That rhetoric certainly also came back in 2020 Boris Johnson frequently threatened to walk away from the negotiations. And I document in the book two things, how that no deal threat galvanized the unity of the EU and also how it did not have any material impact on us as negotiators. Because I say in the book that negotiations are not about trying to crush an opponent or sway an opponent into different mandates or into different things that the the opponent or the other party I should say rather than opponent in negotiations asks for. I argue that a party in negotiation gains influence by offering something of value to the other party rather than by constantly rejecting what the other party wants or what the other party says it absolutely needs to conclude an agreement. Before concluding, let me discuss one example of a negotiation episode, which I found particularly revealing for many aspects I discussed so far and which underscored that point that Brexit in London was seen very differently from Brexit in Brussels. In November 2018, we concluded a deal, an agreement with Theresa May and her government. It was a very difficult period for the government. David Davis had resigned a few months earlier. Boris Johnson as foreign secretary had resigned. Dominic Raab, the Brexit secretary, would resign that night over the agreement by the government to, to the agreement we had negotiated. A softer Brexit than what Theresa May had originally announced in her early speeches. And we were waiting in Brussels for Dominic Raab to come for a press conference. This is just a picture of us at the press conference. It was then a solo press conference Michel Barnier gave in the end after Theresa May had spoken here in Downing Street to announce the agreement. This is us, part of the core negotiating team, looking on Twitter, what the people behind us tweet about what Barnier says on the podium.
4: <laughs>
3: <laughs> we all like that picture, so it's, it's in the book. So. But to come back to the story, the story was a few days after we emerged from that famous tunnel, which is that dark space where negotiators shielded us from transparency, our usual transparency with national diplomats were negotiating with Theresa May's team, notably on Northern Ireland, Ireland, the avoiding the hard border, which had been dominating the discussions. And the book shows that when Barnier's team presented that deal, that agreement, to the twenty-seven ambassadors, there were many questions whether that could how that would work. There were many there was some hesitancy, and the agreement was that the UK would stay as a whole in the customs union with the EU unless and until another solution was found for Northern Ireland. I describe how a Dutch journalist in a technical briefing to Barnier's deputy, who sits on the left here, asked if member states would be able to agree to such a soft cushion for Brexiting Britain. And a few weeks earlier, eight ministers of fishery had met to discuss their concerns about what Barnier was doing and notably their concern that the fishery member states would give up some influence in future negotiations by agreeing to, to the backstop as it emerged and eventually with Theresa May's team. And we as a negotiating team took a calculated risk using political capital that we thought we had, and indeed we had, with member states to make sure this deal was accepted. And it was accepted because it had stringent level playing field conditions attached to it, which Theresa May also never contested. On the contrary, she she always said that the UK was a champion also on state aid competition policy and high standards, and therefore could easily accept that. The reaction in Westminster was somewhat different. Some MPs who were more on the Remain side rejected the agreement because they wanted a second referendum before any agreement would come into place. And people on the Brexit side of the argument argued that the EU had trapped the UK in its rules, in its customs, in its trade policy without a say and without the capacity to strike its own trade deals. Ultimately, that's a fundamentally different view of seeing the world, but what Theresa May saw as benefits, some of her MPs in her party saw as disadvantages. But we in Brussels had to work to make sure that this deal went through. To make a long story short, further divisions emerged in Westminster. As you know, UK voters came to the rescue to end the paralysis in December 19, and in Boris Johnson's word, Bob was your uncle, I think (laughs) is what I quote also in the book, and there, with a revised protocol on Ireland and Northern Ireland. I have one picture in the book, and I conclude after that, which was taken exactly when the Tellers announced in March 2019 the results of the second meaningful vote. And I would like you to look at the faces of my colleagues across the table. It's 10 o'clock in the evening. We had had some red wine, so you can see some <laughs> empty glass. <laughs> I insist it's 10 o'clock in the evening we were looking at. And look at it in light of the accusation that people like Dominic Cummings, allegation at least, said months later when Boris Johnson was in power that the EU team was trying to sabotage Brexit. If you see the two ladies on the right, the despondency or the despair on these faces, for me, tells a 1,000 words in terms of how we had wished that the deal would have gotten through and brexit got done basically anyhow we are now in 2023 so let me conclude Um, on the eu side if you look back now at 2017 and our initial fears one initial fear that certainly not materialized which was that how will the loss of a net contributor 10 billion a year to the EU budget be absorbed? Will this lead to haggling between national treasuries? Today, we have next generation EU and an 800 billion borrowing capacity, um, dwarfing the 10 billion net contribution of the UK at the time. The result of a tiny virus with a big effect. And there is more unity, I would say, today in the EU than there was pre-2016, if you look at how it approached pandemic or how it reacts now to the Russian war in Ukraine. I wrote this book because I, would hope that that I'm respectful of the UK in this book, respectful also of negotiators who had to work in very difficult circumstances. Um, And I hope that by explaining the logic of the EU, we can come to a better common understanding of what happened in that period. Looking back, and I think looking back is important in terms of going forwards, and hopefully a better common understanding and the understanding of the logic of the European Union, how it negotiated can also be helpful for a more constructive relationship going forwards from here onwards. Thank you very much.
4: You. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Now we're going to
1: hear a response from Vicky Price, who, in addition to her current role, of course, was once the head of the government's economic service and chief economist at what is today the business department.
0: Thank you. Um, and thank you very much for taking us through what the book says. And you and I discussed it just a little bit before uh, so that I know what to focus on. It's um, really interesting when you look at the UK's response or or thoughts about the whole process by comparison to where you came from. And I think there was huge misunderstanding in terms of the power balance between the UK and Europe. Um, And I think there was a belief that uh, Europe couldn't do without us, but obviously it can. And also it was obvious to anyone who was watching it from here particularly with a little bit of of European background, which I have got, being Greek and having, of course, uh, seen how Europe dealt with Greece, that Britain didn't stand a chance. And it's exactly what happened uh, at the end of the day. Uh, But I think it's quite interesting to to just go through some of what you have in the book, because uh, it looks like what we've got here in the UK is a bit of a Brexit curse. If you just look at what's happened to all our Prime Ministers. I mean Cameron had to resign. May took over when no one else wanted to have that job because I think everyone knew that it was an impossible job to do and indeed it proved impossible for her. Then we had Johnson, well he's no longer there. Uh, We then briefly had trust, now we have Rishi Sunak. Uh, Most of those people that are mentioned voted or half of them voted to leave, half of them voted remain but it doesn't matter what you voted, if you were a politician, you really had a pretty, pretty bad time. And I think it did reflect the history of the UK's views on, on Europe. And I'm going to quote from your book, um, which does say quite clearly that the UK has had a history of of being basically a, an awkward EU partner and member. So um, Margaret Thatcher, as you've got here, got a UK tailored rebate from the budget. So she managed to get that, uh, which is something, but of course she made herself pretty objectionable during that period. John Major's main EU achievement was to obtain opt-outs in Maastricht. So again, sort of rowing back a little bit of whatever was going on in the EU. Gordon Brown signed the Treaty of Lisbon by himself, skipping the ceremony with all the other EU leaders, just thought he didn't want to be contaminated by doing it right next to them. He signed it on the sideline. Well, David Cameron, one of the few Prime Ministers who did not attend the award of the 2012 Nobel Prize Peace Prize to the EU, took the Conservative Party out of the Influential European People's Party, and that was a big, big, big mistake at the time. Uh, and the EU and the UK hardly agreed on the meaning of EU membership, so we wanted to just be in but be out at the same time, which I think is more or less where we were. So it's not a, really a surprise the way in which uh, they interpreted the meaning of the Leave vote differently. Well but how did they interpret the Leave vote? Uh, You do mention that Theresa May didn't quite know what this was all about um, or what she thought Brexit would look like. So she came up with Brexit means Brexit, uh, which was really interesting. I don't know if you remember at the time, um, I live in Lambeth, which voted, it was probably, uh, it was the highest voting council to stay, um, except for Gibraltar. And uh, they were still looking, apparently, for the one person, in Gibraltar who voted uh, to, to leave. Um, but it is extraordinary because, obviously, the, the council took it quite seriously, or at least they tried to cope with this. So, um, and I remember pretty soon afterwards, there was a lot going on in Brixton. I live very, very close to Brixton. And you would drive down uh, Acre Lane, and there would be great big banners sort of attracting you to go to Brixton and do various things there. Uh, one banner said, visit a single market, uh, which I thought was quite interesting in itself. And another one said, Brixton means Brixton. And I would drive <laughs> and laugh my head off each time. And he was there for quite some while, So you can imagine uh, the, the sort of contempt uh, that we all felt towards this uh, meaningless phrase of Brexit means breaks. And that I think has been the essence of, of the real problems uh, that that we have all we have all had. Um, and it's also interesting what has developed since because you say in the book, and I'm very pleased to hear that, that uh, the people who knew what was going on were the civil servants. Now of course the civil servants in the UK had never really done a trade deal because it was all happening through Europe. So there was a lot that they had to learn. But by comparison to the politicians, I mean, they knew what they were doing and you found uh, dealing with them you know, pretty convincing. Um, but of course, the current government doesn't seem to think very highly of them. We heard about Jace, Jacob rees mogg wanting to, uh, well, reduce the number of civil servants. That plan, by the way, has been abandoned. Uh, but nevertheless a lot of attacks on the civil servants not doing the right thing not even going in when they work because they all want to work from home uh what are they exactly contributing but in the book it is quite obvious that the only people who knew anything about what was going on were the civil servants because you do also attack attack well i shouldn't say that because of course you are still a um functionary in but you do say some interesting things about um the media And I think what you say is that um, the influential reporters and columnists in London don't understand the EU at all. Probably they don't speak any of the languages and they write basically what is fed to them by the Westminster bubble. Uh, And that's what they do. Well if that is the case then obviously the population here thinks differently too. So Things which appear to be a great victory for the UK, or at least sold as a great victory, are not a victory at all. In fact, they were a victory for the EU. And indeed, the unity that you describe is absolutely the thing that has kept it all and made it such a uh, a big, uh, sort of clear uh, departure at the end of the day. Uh, And talking again about the politicians and how much they knew and understood. One of the pictures you did not show, and you were absolutely astonished, I think, when that happened, when the picture was taken and went viral, is in one of the negotiating meetings, um, supposedly, David Davis turns up, uh, who was in charge of the, brec- of the, whatever it was called, Brexit department, or the department for leaving the EU. Um, and the picture shows Barnier, with loads and loads of papers and really really well briefed on one side of this table and across the 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 table David Davis with no papers at all and and of course it's not terribly surprising because I remember watching um, uh, BBC, the sort of Westminster channel and uh, David Davis was asked in Parliament about this report put together by the civil service which had looked at the request of the government, at all the aspects of the economy and their departments, and they were asked to put a report together on what the implications would be. Uh, That report was pretty damning, because it was leaked, so people were able to access it. And David Davies was asked, uh, well, but have you read the report of your own government? He says, well, I don't bother to read anything economists write, or something like that. Uh, Which, of course, adds to the Michael Gove... um, I mean, this country has said enough of of experts. So, evidence wasn't really listened to, and even during those negotiations, uh, the background uh, that the politicians came with was already fixed in their minds. Now, where are we now? I mean, that should have been the 50th anniversary of us joining the European community, uh, which, of course, now we have left. Um, This is the third year, of course, of, of having left... Uh, properly. But it is also the 10th anniversary of Cameron's Bloomberg speech, which heralded the the referendum, which, of course, led to um, Brexit at the end of the day and the issues that we've all suffered uh, since. Now, uh, well, you could say, all right, we have left uh, and uh, we can cope with it. And we still have, you know, relationship with Europe of some sort, but the truth is that the economic implications have been very, very significant. When you look at growth, when you look at trade, when you look at people, when you look at scientific collaboration, uh, all the calculations are that we have already lost in terms of productivity and competitiveness. Uh, But finally, the population is beginning to wake up. It's quite recent. The opinion polls now show that the majority of people think it was a mistake. Uh, it is extraordinary to think that through years such an important country was fed misinformation about the whole issue of being members of the EU and not really focusing on uh, what the single market has to give us. Now I'm speaking not just as a Remainer or remoner or whatever it is that that one may be uh, so sort of labelled as but as an economist who had done quite a lot of work in this area and quite a lot of work, not just recently. I was one of the first people to work on the Cecchini report, which many of you are too young to have even been born when it was done, um, which was called the cost of non-Europe in the late 80s. So I was responsible for one bit of it. I was a partner at KPMG and there were other consulting firms that did all, uh, looked at particular sectors and then we put it all together and looked at the implications of this, which were very significant in terms of having a single market because of the benefits it brings uh, eventually to consumers, low prices, they're both short-term direct uh, uh, impacts and there are also, of course, long-term dynamic impacts. Well, this particular study has been revisited, so I will end with this. And it shows some extraordinary data, and that was just a couple of years ago, where it shows that the single market is found to have increased trade between EU members by 109% on average for goods, And 58% for tradable services, way above what a free trade agreement might actually give you. Which, of course, is what we are now have this free trade agreement, supposedly, which has reduced our trading intensity uh, in the economy and has reduced our exports and imports uh, to the EU. So those gains were huge. The the economic, well, the GDP um, positives have been really much bigger than. Uh, we had anticipated, and of course, if anything, with a change in the institutional framework that has taken place after the financial crisis and the dreadful uh, things that happen to places like Greece, uh, we now have a lot more of a basis for growth in Europe by comparison to where the u k is and hugely greater ability to borrow and invest in places in th- sectors like green energy than uh, is the case in the u k which is uh, in danger of being Left behind. So the latest opinion polls show not only that the majority of people think that it was a mistake, but also that if they were to vote today, they would vote to stay.
1: Okay. Just before we come to the audience, both uh, at home and in the theatre here, I just want to put a question. I mean, as you described it. The EU, in effect, was negotiating, knowing what it wanted out of the deal, a deal, where the UK government, for all sorts of obvious reasons, didn't know. Put it to the They were negotiating something without an end point. Now, that, in a sense, is an easy accusation, but you could argue, take the case the other way around, that the EU didn't have to put what it was negotiating, to 27 legislatures as it went along, whereas the UK did. Now, I'm sure uh, those who support Brexit would see that need, however you think it worked well or badly, as making a point about the UK putting the case for whatever it was trying to negotiate to its legislature in a way the EU didn't have to. And doesn't that get to the core of some of the criticisms made by people who favoured Brexit, of the way the EU
3: works? First we had our legislature, we have European Parliament. Of course Parliament, who, but not the individual uh, nation states. No. no, not for the withdrawal agreement and neither in the end for the trade and, and cooperation agreement. I guess what you're saying is it's more political here than on, on the Brussels side. I think here it was very different in 2020 when Johnson had a comfortable majority compared to the period before that. So I think we're generalizing a bit too quickly that the UK government was a bit lost in the story. The Johnson government, I think, and David Frost would argue they knew very well what they wanted, the free trade, rather, rather relatively minimal free trade agreement. The problem with that was that we needed enough on fisheries and level playing field in order to be able to agree to the period before was a very difficult period and and Vicky says well Brexit means Brexit is is perhaps not the most enlightening motto (laughs) in the context of where Theresa May had to work where some of MPs in her party said we don't want Brexit and it, it had some meaning and so it, and I would say what the book shows that she constructed that meaning as she went along basically. The Lancaster House speech was very different from what came out in November 2018 that I briefly just described there be behind the lectern. Um, then, that's my final point. That the, the underlying would be the what Dominic Raps says in the book were dogmatic or legalistic and rigid. I think the book takes issue with that because with Johnson we negotiated a hard Brexit and with Theresa May somewhat softer version. So we negotiated two different Brexits with two different governments and Prime Ministers. I think that's not something to, to be forgotten. When people say we're legalistic and rigid, and I, don't think, I think that defies that point.
1: Okay, well, actually, I'm going to take a question that relates to this uh, from outside the theatre. So I'm going to take it from somebody at home. For, unusually. So Richard Corbett uh, says, you, that's you, uh, say it was easier to negotiate with Johnson than May... But was that not because he was willing to agree points with no intention of <laughs> implementing them
4: afterwards?
1: <laughs> I.e. the Northern Ireland Protocol, participation in Erasmus, um, provision for a security partnership, etc. Um, well done, Richard, for getting a laugh from an audience when you're not in the room. <laughs>
3: Erasmus suddenly disappeared the very last days, I think. I forgot exactly, was one week before that we were all done with Erasmus with the civil servants and then the decision was taken not sure for what reason that Erasmus wouldn't happen. On common foreign security policy indeed we had agreed with Boris Johnson in October 2019 a political declaration on the future relationship which had a specific chapter on that that followed from Theresa May's request to have the best possible partnership with the EU compared to any other UK third country relationship in the world. That was the official policy in Government papers from Theresa May, and then Johnson Frost said, "No, we don't want this any longer." So, I think the biggest difficulty during the negotiations was the fact that Theresa May wanted frictionless trade out of the single market and customs union, and that is not. And that's why I argued it was easier with David Frost and Boris Johnson in, in 2020. Um, there were episodes in 2020 with the violation, the, UK, the violation of international law in September 2020. The backtracking on the political declaration. Of course, it was a different government. That uh, backtracking political declaration. Again, not up to me to, to defend the UK government. But then, there was a big difference between Johnson pre-December 19 and post-December 19 because he had a majority. Johnson tried to say in September 2020, "We'll violate international law." I think that was to put pressure on us. No deal end of June, end of August, by October, no deal, we walk away, that never happened. So that confrontational rhetoric, and perhaps also the backtracking on what had been agreed, never really impressed us. And we we kept them separate, the withdrawal agreement from the future relationship.
0: Well, I suppose the the point there is that uh, Theresa May thought you could have frictionless trade or or take bits of the single market that that suited us. Mm. Um, and uh, uh, and then we'd come, we go in and out a little bit like what we had done before. Get some opt-outs on this, and then still mm. be there and have preferential uh, arrangements with with the EU. So quite unrealistic. Or what were you doing when she was she was arguing that that's what she wanted, or she was hoping to get? That I mean, I presume you you were telling the officials that there was no point in even discussing it. So how did you, I mean, how did you get to any? <laughs> I mean, I read a little bit about the yes, where you were sort of quite surprised about that type of demand.
3: Well in phase one was quite, we were very, very firm on financial settlement citizens' right, and if you look what comes out in December 17th from the negotiations it's the opposite from the Downing Street dinner of April 17th mm-hmm. so the UK changed position quite dramatically in, in those six, seven months
4: which was so our first negotiation
3: experience which also was, uh, let's just be patient, let's focus on what we need uh, and what we can do and I think we could do, as I said softer, or harder Brexit, within the limits of a mandate, but always respecting the core principles we had. So in 2018, we, especially on the Northern Irish Backstop, which was the UK-wide customs union, that came out of a back-and-forth, give-and-take kind of process, where with the level playing field conditions attached to it, we were managed to do that. The problem with later on with Boris Johnson is that he didn't want that kind of obligations on the UK and could therefore not get corresponding benefits.
1: Okay, I'm going to open it up to the room. There are going to be lots of questions. It's got lots more online. So let's um, start with the person in blue in the middle. there. right in the to make it as difficult for the microphone to get to as possible. I'll come to others. But I'll take them in two, three so we get through lots of questions. So try and make them
4: short. Um, I'm Charlie Ponnais. I work for um, an implementing agency of the Dutch government and study at LSE at the moment. Um, you mentioned that... Patience had a big role in the negotiations. Um, to what extent was that attitude uh, assumed by the EU and to what extent by the UK? And could you have negotiated without that patience as a strategy?
1: Patience. Right, and there was a hand there. Um, hi, I'm Ulysse, I'm a student at the European Institute here at LSE. Um Guy Verhofstadt, a uh Renew Europe MEP, said I have a dream. Uh Ukraine and Britain joining the EU in the next five years. Um he said that on the thirtieth of January, so this year recently. Do you think that's realistic from the EU perspective? As in does the EU would the EU be open and um would the EU want the UK to rejoin the EU in the next five years? And I think I read Michel Barnier quoted the other day in the telegraph saying that the You would welcome the the, UK back at any time. (laughs) back there.
2: Hello, my name is Danny Hattam. I work here at the LSE. The great villain, quote unquote, of the referendum were the leavers, I imagine, uh, in the minds of most people here. But I can also see that during the negotiation period, the great villain, quote unquote, were the remainers. Uh, Just how frustrating was it in Brussels to see people who, at all costs, seemed to refuse to engage in the process in the hopes that they could just stop the whole thing?
1: Paradox indeed. Right.
3: Uh, Do you want to have a go at those three? (laughs) Yes. It's a great question on patience, especially needed when we were confronted with three types of situations. A threat to walk away, a UK which hadn't made up its mind on what it wanted, I quote one ambassador in 2018, that it's hard to negotiate with a country that doesn't know what it wants. And that was in the context of a divided government, a divided conservative party in the House of Commons. Some people wanted no deal, others wanted no Brexit. Uh, We'll come to that on the Remain side. And what helped us, the unity, of course, made sure we, we could practice that, but also the clarity of our mandate, I think. There was no way that we could agree to something that violated the core of our mandate. And so as long as that was not there, member states would not basically say, just wait, right? I mean, uh, in the book I describe when Johnson came into power, it was like, do or die, ditch the backstop. And, and member states, I describe in the book, said, well, the only thing we can do is wait. So that's that's an example of patience, basically, at a crucial time of negotiations can't say that it wasn't nerve-wracking at the time. <laughs> Sometimes it's, you get quite nervous when you're patient. On Guy Verhofstadt and Michel a French Gaullist who quoted in the Daily Telegraph, for what you say. I, I, I'm talking here as an author of this book. I'm also, any officials so have to be a little bit careful in terms of what I, what I say to that. But what I would say two things is, one is the eu is changing obviously mm. i spoke about an 800 billion borrowing capacity which is called next generation eu post pandemic we used the peace facility for funding of national arms to to ukraine so national deliveries are funded by the eu partly funded by the eu so there's greater defense cooperation that is there is a lot of happening in the, in the industrial deal green deal so the eu is evolving as as we speak, right, So, and and deepening Uh, with eight, nine countries wanting to join Uh, Balkans, Ukraine, and some others so um, I would also say that we are in a different situation today, and it's not so much about rejoin, but in terms of the relationship going forward, from the period of the book, which is a period of acrimony also in especially until Brexit was done. And that then comes to the Remain question. Um, Robert Peston is on the cover there. The Brexit you'll never hear about from a British negotiator, an important book, but it's also the Brexit you perhaps never hear about from the Remain people that came to see Michel Barnier and found a negotiator who said, well, I'm working for the deal. And that's hence my picture that I showed. So we had people on the Remain side who came to us and you will need to read the book to see who that is but can't you provoke a crisis in UK politics? It could be cathartic and then we would come perhaps to another referendum or or surely on free movement of people there is a way out and we have less free movement of people but still we'll, we'll be a member somehow a bit like the, an extra opt-out or something or at least some some restrictions and we said that just won't happen you had your chance with the Cameron settlement, you did a referendum which was in or out and we were working for a deal, so we were working for Brexit, even though I describe at the very end that we sacrificed a lot in terms of our private time for a project we didn't believe in, but we had to deliver because it was in our interest to have a deal. And so Remain people had to live with that.
1: Um let going to take three more now. One from uh, Kevin Featherstone of the European Institute, who, in different circumstances, would have been here this evening. Stefan said it was easier to negotiate with Boris Johnson... But on the Northern Ireland Protocol, we're back to that, Mm -hmm. uh, didn't he trick you by agreeing to something he didn't really plan to implement, that is no border controls over the Irish Sea? Some might say he lied and got away with it. But, I mean, bringing that down to where we are now, though, in a sense, it looks as if perhaps, in order to get the final deal, the EU is going to have to soften its position compared with what was in the Protocol. Discuss. So I'll add that to Kevin's other sharp question, and down the front here, there, was somebody at the back, I remember, vaguely. yes, please.
5: Uh,
4: thank you, uh, Sheila Page, I, I've worked on trade agreements in the past, and that actually is a bit the point of my question, it's not quite true that no one in the UK had negotiated a trade agreement, a lot of them had negotiated trade agreements for other people. If instead of having it done in the Brexit department, it have been managed in ODA, they actually would have been a considerable amount of expertise. And so my question really is, has the um, civil service, notably uh, your whole department, learned anything from this? Because it did seem not very good at the nitty-gritty of what anything from rules of origin to actually how you do a trade agreement. It seems to have forgotten about things like movement of musicians, of research uh, funding and things like that. I mean, has it learned anything about trying to draw in expertise from the rest of the UK government or indeed the rest of UK society?
1: Good question. I'll put that on to Vicky first when we get there. And there was one other arm on down there. So I've got three questions again.
2: Um, hi. Thank you for your time uh, tonight. Um, so, from the outside, it seemed that all the discussions around fishing territories and the fishing industries were quite uh, important and conflictual. Um, my question is, was this true? But also, more generally, do you think that all the pain points that gets out into the media are very reflective of the reality? And how does public opinion influence those day-to-day negotiations?
1: Vicky, can I take you first this time? I know it's Stefan's book, mm-hmm. but, but the, the precise point about, let me paraphrase, did the civil service not fail in the way it's sometimes described by uh, Brexiteers, but fail Remainers as well? Did it fail both?
0: Well, the civil service, of course, I, I, I was a civil servant and I worked in the trade department. So, Emery, uh, anyway, you, you've got a point, as you know, you know for well, that um, uh, the... Nev- through the the period that we were members of the EU, a lot of the trade deals and negotiations were actually done from Brussels with support, Um, but one hadn't really sat down and and agreed a new deal. But of course, every little bit of how the single market was developing was done with all the civil servants working on this and, and advising, and also when it came to state aid rules, which are just about to be abolished, it seems, in Europe. Um, we knew how to negotiate with that. And of course, we had all sorts of uh, dealings with Europe on what to do with the financial services and the service sector overall, e-commerce and so on. So so there were those issues that were dealt with quite well in the past. Uh, But of course, when it comes to changing uh, how you work, you've mentioned the rules of origin, which basically, for those who don't know, it means that the agreement that has been signed uh, requires one to um, prove that whatever it is that we're selling, on the merchandise side is uh, mostly UK, and everything that isn't, because we're no longer members of the customs union, uh, needs to be properly declared. And if the customs, <coughs> that or the tariffs that we charge are not the same as what the EU charges, we have to uh, adjust for it. So that's roughly how it works. Uh, and we all, if uh, the percentage is acceptable, you still need to prove that that is the case. So you don't have to pay any extra tariffs on this, and but you need documentation. So there's all that, plus everything else in terms of uh, ensuring that, that um, uh, you've gone through various processes, particularly on agricultural food and s- sanity regulations and all that, which increase the cost. So uh, those things uh, have added to the complication of it all and have added to the need of um, businesses to get the advice. Before, on normal export stuff, there was a lot of support that, that the various agencies that the, the, the department was involved in could do. After that, it has become a little bit more difficult because you require those experts. In addition, the government has gone out to recruit any trade expert they can possibly think of who may have negotiated a trade deal with somebody, some remote island anywhere. Uh, and they did that. Uh, and, and they did bring people in. Um, uh, but the interesting thing is that there weren't very many of them. Around that you can get from outside the EU itself um, that, and that can easily come and do the, the, the re- negotiation with with Europe or perhaps help us with any other uh, countries but we did bring lots of Australians um, to help us and and and, and a few others uh, has the civil service learned a lot from that uh, well we have managed to do loads and loads of trade deals in the last in the last couple of years Many of them, though, were simply rolling over what the EU already had. Uh, We've done some new ones, like with Australia, and we've done them rather badly, because basically we've helped those countries, rather than necessarily helping our agricultural sector, or our fisheries sector, by the way, which is uh, screaming, saying let down by the Brexit deal.
1: So, Kevin Pleatherston's question. Is it, in a sense, the the way the protocol was signed? I mean, I'm I'm certainly adding to his point, sort of um, meaning that in the end the EU will have to compromise a bit more than it meant to.
3: Could I just say one thing on civil servants? Because I, I'm a civil servant, <laughs> so I have to be careful on, on your question on today. But it's very hard for civil servants to work for a divided government. What you do as a civil servant you gain time you try not to commit that's why i say in the book i document in the book february 2018 where i think four or five members of the Theresa may's government gave speeches on the future relationship and one contradicted the other so if you're a civil servant working for that government that's not an easy job <laughs> and so you try to slow down and, and gain time. Well, they were
1: deliberate, deliberately ambiguous to hold the coalition together in the cabinet, weren't they? That's what they were doing.
3: And, but people were briefing against each other. In the book, and, okay. called, sorry. There are two chapters in the book on the, the negotiations on the protocol on Northern Ireland with Boris Johnson, and two on Theresa May. And it's... That chapter is quite... Um, on Johnson's Downing Street operation quite remarkable for the discrepancy between what was happening in the actual negotiations and what was fed by some people in Downing Street to the media Um, so there was times when I would look at the UK media with belligerent confrontational rhetoric and leaks as well on the same day as we had made good progress in in the actual talks in Brussels that has always struck me and I come back to Vicky's initial points on the media I think and there's at least one in this room but there's some brilliant journalists who have made a ver- who understood very well uh, what was happening in, in in these negotiations so I wouldn't want to make this a general statement on UK media but I came to know quite a bit of editors also in London and from there were a, a number of people who didn't understand the EU enough they told me literally to play their role as fourth estate and, and keep and hold the government to account and there's part of the media where as I s- describe again in the book, the pre-existing views on the EU just feed the angle of, of, of the news desk, sometimes the despair of their Brussels correspondents. Um, so um, the question is quite direct on, um, yes. on the personality of the Prime Minister, that's not something I feel at liberty, I can't, okay. I can't look into his head, I just okay. can document in the book that I think he Boris Johnson understood very well the details of what he agreed to in October 19. So right. people think he's maybe not a details man, which is what I call as a question. That's certainly not the image that comes out of the book in October okay. 19. And we don't um, fisheries question. No, well, yes, that's a very good question again. Uh, it was very difficult. It was the last issue standing yeah, after we concluded level playing field. On the 24th of December 2020, we, the only issue was fisheries. And partly, you have to understand that member states with fishing interests, and they're five, six, seven, eight, depending a bit, but for them to agree deliberately to a deal that hurts their fishing industry is not easy. Mm-hmm. So, for some member states, what David Frost was arguing till October 2020 was basically a no deal situation because a prime minister or, or, or a government leader cannot stand up to his or her fishing community and say, well, we have a good deal um, with the UK, just not for, for you. <laughs> that's, not a, that's, a, that's not a winning situation. So we had to find a way out. And we did with quite a bit of give and take on both sides. For us, we have a six-year transition period, where it goes from like 100 to 75. And we have mm. sustained the quota over time. This issue will no doubt come back in 26, huh? uh, in terms of access to waters, but then there's also an issue of access to energy grids and all that is linked deliberately so in in this, uh, in, but, in the agreement.
0: But the question is, if I may, uh, how much was understood about what the implications of this agreement would be? Because I think you have somewhere a quote, and I, I thought I had underlined all this to ask you, where um, an expletive was used, uh, which is always nice to see in a book. Um, I can't remember where it was, uh, Johnson or Frost, who says, who cares about the <clears throat> mackerel? Hmm. Um, so dismissing the entire thing as being... You know, not no, b- beyond their sort of concerns, but they, hmm. is that? Does it mean they didn't understand? Wasn't uh, anyone there who understood anything about fishing?
3: The book doesn't say, by the way, that that David Frost said that. It says there ah. was a tweet which oh, claimed that David Frost said that, ah,
0: right, okay.
3: as an expression of the exasperation on that final day.
0: Four
1: macro.
4: Poor
1: Macron. <laughs> right. Uh, right. Let's go to the yes. Uh, I said we be uh, equal. Up. So there, and then the person here.
4: Yeah.
6: um, Thank you very much. Um, The name's uh, Ewan Grant. I'm now a broadcaster and writer. I've mainly been uh, doing TV and radio on the war in Ukraine. But I did work in a um, number of European Union programs as a contractor in Ukraine, including just before and after the Maidan. much of what I saw from the EU and the EU delegation was not exactly the raid of international assistance. Um, my question is on um, common security and defense and the current war. How do you see the prospects of that leading to better relationships, more effective relationships in those fields and hopefully um, spinning over into um, other issues i have noticed that many commission officials as opposed to member state officials aren't always comfortable with CSDP issues and that particularly applies to germany which i think is a real issue for the member states and the uk and nato and the us thank you
1: okay and uh yeah,
4: yes, straight. Hello, my name is Angeliki. I'm a master's student in development studies at LSE. And I was also kind of lucky to take part in discussions back in 2019 as a trainee at the Embassy of Greece, at the Home Office, and the member states. Uh, so, my question is um, what are the key lessons learned from the deal? <laughs> and my additional question would be. Uh, Many have drawn upon an EU identity crisis. Um, Taking into consideration persisting voices like Orban, um, are are, EU still um, have to deal with an identity crisis? Has this been overcome? Um, What are your
7: thoughts? Uh, My name is Franco and I work in trade policy here in London. And my question is for uh, looking into 2024 and 2025 if there were to be a change in UK government, say, uh, Keir Starmer-led government, mm-hmm. uh, would that give the possibility to reset and relations and leave the possibility to fundamentally change the TCA?
1: Intriguing question, neither government or opposition talks about.
7: Good
6: evening, uh, John Batchelor. What differences in negotiating style did you observe between Davies, Rob, Oakley, and Frost? Um, Did they always display the skill sets that you would expect of effective negotiators? Um, Did they always stick to the brief varying as it was given by their parliaments or was there an element of freelancing or policy making on the hoof? And did you get any indication or notice before the first three of them threw in the towel?
1: Right. Well, there's a nice, easy one for an <laughs> official who's going back to work for an official organisation. <laughs> right, fair enough. Go for it. Uh, which? Oh,
3: you start. All right. So, um, I will always bring it back to the book, if, if you allow me. So, because, as you say, I, I'm an EU official, but I speak tonight as author of the book, and I'm actually very grateful to the Commission that it allows me to do this as a civil servant in my personal capacity as, as author. But on common foreign security policy first. Uh, clearly the situation today is, is already different uh, from from the initial stages of the post-Brexit Britain, so to say. Uh, we tried with David Frost, Boris Johnson, to convince them to... and Member States wanted us to, to convince them to sign up to a common foreign and security policy partnership. We even published a text... Uh, even though we said to our member states, look, David Frost doesn't want it, Johnson doesn't want it, there's no point to ask something which the other party doesn't want. It comes back a bit to the negotiation style of approach. Why ask something if the other party says we don't, we really don't want that? Um, it has changed in the meantime. Eh? If you think about the first months after when Brexit happened, the end of transition period, the EU ambassador here, diplomatic immunity, all of that was a bit of a mini-row um, the first focus of, of the UK was certainly to work bilaterally with member states, and then at some point it also changed with Liz Truss, who attended uh, the Common Foreign and Insec- the foreign the Foreign Policy Council, together with Anthony Blinken and other foreign secretaries or ministers of foreign affairs from other countries. So that was already an important change in a way that ex- symbolically expressed that. And then there is the European political community now, mm. which will be hosted also in the UK first in Moldova in June uh, and later on Spain the UK so that's also an expression of can we discuss things that are st- geopolitically strategically important so that's uh, outside of the EU structures but still an important an important new forum but it was not for want of trying on our side that we don't have a common foreign and security policy partnership today or a structured dialogue or or those kind of issues on the question of lessons learned and um, and you mentioned victor orban in the book victor orban is a strong supporter of eu unity on the brexit negotiations uh, and at some point the uk diplomats tried to work with different countries and could the unity be broken that never worked and i wouldn't also know why any of the 27 eu leaders would have broken the unity for the sake of of what for them you know what what, what would be in it for for someone To break a unity which certainly the franco-german alliance and other countries certainly wanted to maintain and all countries wanted to maintain if you look look back the key lesson for me is if you negotiate, it sounds very trivial but if you negotiate know what you want (laughs) be clear about what you want there's no point in confronting the other party and telling the other party that was quite remarkable for me sometimes that negotiators would tell us you're not asking EU for the right things you're making the wrong choices you EU what you what you try to do is not in your own interest UK people would say British people, negotiators would say I'm like this is our position <laughs> Like, whether you think this is, an, this is the choice we collectively made and and so respect the mandate of the other party but try to work with that mandate um, and then to come back to the negotiators, well, we had four. Again, with David Frost, that government knew what it wanted. It's, it was a harder Brexit, perhaps economically more damaging, than, but that was what the government wanted. And that was, therefore, within that paradigm of Canada with level playing field conditions uh, and the fishery issue, which, which was a complicated one. Um, I think the most difficult part with the previous negotiators, especially the David Davis, Dominic Carapos, they were part of a government that denied that leaving the single market did have to have a negative economic impact. Mm -hmm. That was the most difficult part. And then they tried to work with trust and we no longer have common institutions where you can trust us, UK. Member states trust each other because they have common institutions that make sure that what is agreed is implemented and enforced. And there's a court of justice ultimately to do it if, if need be. And impose fines even on member states if they don't play by the rules of were agreed. Once you're outside of that structure, trust is is not something that works in terms of trade and, and, and standards and, and all those kind of issues. Um, yeah, I think so
0: I, yeah, perhaps just a couple of things. Oh. But going back to to whether um, Boris Johnson was not intended to implement anything that he signed. Question um, asked that. Question. Yes. Well, um, what we've seen interestingly enough is that uh, we haven't done what we said we we're going to do in terms of controls at the border
4: mm.
0: uh, for goods coming in and, and certainly we've been delaying them and delaying them whereas they do exist the other side of the channel we haven't got them here and and I do we do know that there is unless it's been withdrawn there is a legal challenge to the UK which actually uh, you know there's been yet another legal challenge recently in terms of you know some of the Um, the intentions that we have uh, in in relation to regulations that exist here. and There is a concern, and it was in all the the papers over the weekend, that uh, the EU will um, make life much more difficult and impose more trade restrictions if we start um, the the burning, if you like, the bonfire of all the regulations that are now uh, in a statute book, which we want to eliminate or get rid of by the end of the year, supposedly. Um, and of course, loads of them have to do with environment and uh, standards for labor and so on. So, if those were to happen and the competitive balance sort of changed, if you like, then the EU uh, will reciprocate. What we have seen so far is the EU threatens to but doesn't actually do it. Uh, so, it would be interesting. I mean, I would quite like to hear what, whether you think that um, we are indeed moving into that more litigational. Uh, environment. But on the other hand, we are making some progress, supposedly, on the Northern Ireland Protocol. So that may help. Uh, so, so that's the one thing. But when it comes to what we might do with uh, an election, um, we were discussing this mm. before. Would we be, if we were, let's, let's be in dreamland, that we decide to go back in and there is some sort of referendum, that guess, there or whatever, or at least start considering it. There is the question of, do we join the euro as well? Would that be part of the obligation or not? Um, but also, frankly, so far, uh, our leaders, that includes uh, the Lib Dems who uh, had been so in favour of another referendum and that caused them to lose a huge amount of the their, their number of MPs in the in the election that followed. Everyone is very scared in this country to really, in political party, to say that we are we will be considering going back in. In fact, if anything, Kiyostama has reinforced the view Uh, that uh, we're not going back and that we just have to make Brexit work better. Uh, Now, that may just be to win an election and things may change after this political uh, will, but uh, the question really is, given that there are, for me, that there are so many areas where we haven't got an agreement yet, whether it's in the financial sector, whether it is in the movement of uh, musicians and others, whether it's easier access to students or anything like that, whether it's Horizon, where we still haven't paid Uh, the amount of money to get us in, whether really there is, from your experience, the ability to just do a better deal, um, uh, or whether it's just wishful thinking.
1: Okay, well, we'll one more question on that. I'm going to ask another one uh, from uh, outside the room, um, Anne Corbett, um, LSE Consulting. Uh, Given that Vicky's just mentioned Horizon, Your book tells us that negotiators had had agreed continued UK access to the Erasmus programme. What was the EU reaction when you learned that one, the UK government then turned the deal down and two, that it already had its own mobility
3: programme Turing,
1: ready for launching?
3: Yes, we were ready. Uh, The initial ask from the UK was could we stay in Erasmus for half of the period, which we said no, either you're in it or you're not in it, so it's the whole period till the end of twenty seven. And then we negotiated the details of that deal, and it, the, someone pulled the plug at the last minute. Um, so, someone, well, Downing Street, Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, I would, I would think, yeah, with, with or at least with his, with his approval. Obviously, with his approval. Did you get uh, any sense
1: of why they pulled it?
3: It's hard for me to say. I maybe it was an issue of political symbolism in there. Erasmus is a kind of symbol of Europeanness, or I don't know if that was part of it. That's it's, for me. The questions, I can't, yeah, I can only, from the receiving end, say we were ready to give it, we had negotiated it, and and basically we, yeah, it takes two to
7: tango, as they say.
1: Okay, there's more questions in the audience, actually. Let's take one there and one here. One there, take three again.
7: Thank you. Hi, Stefan. I'm Chris Morris. I was a BBC journalist based in Brussels for a long time and then covering the events the book describes you um, mentioned in here. Stefan, I'm going to take you back to the issue of Boris Johnson, if I may, and, and please do answer this question as the author of the book rather than as a, a somewhat cautious EU official. Um, <laughs> you said It's an intriguing thing you said, that he understood the fact that there are trade-offs involved in leaving, leaving the single market, and yet his public position was to pre- pretend that those trade-offs didn't exist. So he said there'd be no checks on goods moving between... Great Britain and Northern Ireland, not what his own deal says. He said there would be uh, no non-tariff barriers between the EU and the UK, clearly untrue under the terms of his own deal. And yet you say that he understood the details, so something doesn't quite add up. Are you saying that he said very different things in private than he did in public? And also, how did senior EU leaders that you worked for react when they heard him began to sell the deal in public in terms that didn't quite correspond with reality.
1: Well there we are, evidence if we need it, that journalists make better inquisitors than academics. Thank you for that, very good. Um, and in the middle here. Well, I'm Christian, I'm a German MPA student here at the uh, School of Public Policy. Um, I'd be interested to know um, how the position of the EU Commission developed over time, seeing how the debate evolved in uh, in the UK. Um, especially after the mandate was established, I still observe the uh, debate in Europe as torn between we need to set an example
2: uh, that it can't be beneficial to, you to leave the EU and others that wanted to leave the relations in good shape, um, given that At least it appeared to me that the UK tried to fool a little bit around, maybe with the
1: the EU. Um, Did that kind of change the perception towards maybe having a harder deal done uh, towards setting more kind of an example?
5: Oh, hi. Uh, Bob Hewlett here. I'm a a retired cab driver, so that's why I'm going to apologize in, in, in advance. If I stop, start, and go all over the place, <laughs> um, I think you've been uh, very, very kind to our negotiators, and I think Vicky was very kind to our list of uh, Tory Prime Ministers, because to me, they did sound like uh, the rejects from, uh, character rejects from Trump's and Fire Crew. But uh, with the um, UK uh, negotiating team, I think you're on the EU side, the influences were sort of ABC of um, Ardenauer, Besch and to some extent Churchill. And on the UK side, I think, our, the, I think the UK influences were really the BBC, which was Blyton, Biggles, and Colonel Blimp. Uh, on a serious question, um, I'd like to know, with us coming out of Interpol and the um, uh, police security uh, bodies, uh, how dangerous is Britain going to become uh, as a sort of offshore um, uh, haven for uh, organised crime, and does the EU uh, perceive that as a threat or a possible threat?
1: Okay, and then I'm going to take one here, and then one, going one up in the, and another one right there. That that will have to be it. So, okay, very good. We'll be further.
5: Hi, I'm Marco. I'm a master student here um, at the Euro- European Eastern LSE. I have a question about uh, what kind of nego- negotiation relationship you developed with uh, Boris Johnson's negotiating team. Um, were they acting like tough negotiators? Or like did they, have, uh, did they have a tough attitude in general? Was the interaction tense? And if that's the case, what well, What impact did this have on the final
2: outcome of the negotiation? Thank you.
1: Okay, and we'll get you up in the uh, circle, Yep.
2: Thank you. Um, Christopher Prentice, former British diplomat. Um, Could I ask you to go back to the earlier stage in in the um, negotiations to the point of the triggering of Article 51? And and that is sometimes identified as the um, fundamental first error Tactical error, putting all the pressure on the British side, having having um, launched a two-year process with no idea of what you wanted to get out of it or what your position was. Had sense prevailed and uh, that government not triggered Article 51 until they had decided what a British position was, what would have happened? How how would we still be in some? um hellish circle of being having voted to go out but never having got even into the negotiation.
1: Almost answered your own question there but nevertheless a bit and here. And then that might be the last one. Hello I'm Andrew Lane, I'm a lawyer.
2: Um Given that there are so many aspects of the deal we've negotiated with the EU that have yet to finally land, Northern Ireland, fishing, visas to enter the EU, and so on and so on, have we in fact got Brexit done? Um, and indeed, what do we need to, what further needs to be done to actually get Brexit done? Where, where will it land?
1: It's an interesting question, because i have certainly reading a number of um, pro-Brexit commentators recently, they've definitely sort of detached the idea of, leaving the European Union from getting Brexit done, which I think is a, an interesting further iteration.
0: What I had asked earlier, but mm-hmm. it's more less the same question, is, is that perhaps that is what Kirstammer thinks he might be able to achieve. And, and, uh, or it may all be achieved before that, of course. And, mm. um, so and whether it's doable is the real question. What does it actually mean? What does it require for that to happen? So
3: There's a lot there. Yes, there is a lot. It seems to me that Brexit is a word with many different meanings, right? <laughs> yes. But, uh, <laughs>
2: the subtitle is,
3: How do you got Brexit done, which is a bit cheeky, but it's basically oh, to say, well, we, we, we never wanted to sabotage the project, unlike what some media or even political advisors in, in this country were saying. Uh, but but you're right that there's there's a review clause there is a 2026 energy slash fisheries issue there there are sunset clauses to adequacy and equivalence agreements, you refer to migration issues Uh, there is a lot there and it seems to me that yeah, the, the UK as such a close third country will always have to come to an understanding and see what it wants to basically perhaps ask from the EU uh, which brings me a bit to speculative questions I'm not going to enter too much but there's two things I want to say on future, one is we fought hard against what David Frost and and, and Johnson wanted to have this I'm going to get very nerdy for a second, this overarching governance agreement which is basically a partnership council which says we can also have supplementing agreements and you plug Mm -hmm. them in there, like a plug and play kind of thing, so, but before people get too excited of course you has it will have to be also in the EU's interest and what I write in the book the defense of the EU's interest is is certainly something which will continue guiding the EU and it is in the EU's interest to have a closer and better relationship but we will need to see what kind of terms member states will want want to define on that taking them in the reverse order perhaps so tactical error article 50 my argument in the book, it has been made as, a, as an argument by people, it said we should have taken more time have sound out capitals none of the capitals wanted to talk to the British government before the letter had been sent because the letter is a formal act under a treaty to leave the EU so was there perhaps a better process possible within the UK on what do we want from this, what does it mean 52% want to leave um, can we have our cake and eat it in terms of Pro, my policy is pro-having cake and pro-eating it. Is. come back to <laughs> Boris Johnson, uh, what he said to the BBC, I think, to Laura Kunzberg, from what I recall. So, so was that, I, I would say, from the EU side, we were waiting for the letter, whether a different process had been possible here, possibly. And of course, with the benefit of hindsight in the book, you say Theresa May's first speeches were about a hard Brexit, and what came out of the process was not, not exactly that. But by that time she had certainly raised expectations with some MPs and what she was trying to, to deliver certainly.
0: But you did uh, say there in the book on that one, before you yeah. leave, that uh, the fact that from triggering it you had sort of, two years, mm. yes there could be a transition period possibly, was actually was to the disbenefit of the Brits in terms of the negotiating. So, because but, it, all the cards were with
3: you. But the clock is ticking, as mm. we used to say, and that's something which goes back to Giscard d'Estaing, the, the changes of the treaty. I mean, I remember that Nigel Farage was in saying at that time, when Article 50 was introduced, we need some kind of ticking clock because we can't be a prisoner forever of never-ending negotiations. Sure, ticking clock is fine, but it, of course, it, it, mm. in terms of your first point of power imbalance in the negotiation, the patience was clearly on our side also the the huge agenda for the UK in terms of negotiating Brexit, preparing domestically, talking to third countries about post-Brexit trade deals. It was an enormous agenda obviously too. On security cooperation it's less good than as an EU member obviously, but there is a decent amount of security cooperation underpinned by the Convention of Human Rights as a, as a um, um, issue of compliance and finding the right balance between the state and security and protecting people's rights but that's in there it's not real-time database access compared to what the uk asked but there is some other mechanism to get access a bit more cumbersome Uh, i'm going a bit quickly here but um setting an example is not what we try to do i think i mean it's just a natural fact of brexit that you have less benefits and less obligations uh, because you want more sovereignty or take back control of sovereignty. So I, I wouldn't say that as setting an example, it's just the act of Brexit itself leads to diminished benefits and diminished obligations. So in terms of the question from the German MBA student, I think that's basically what I would say to, to setting an example. Did our negotiating position develop over time more in 2020 than before, I would say? Because before we were sticking to the withdrawal agreement and the withdrawal issues on the future relationship there was more give and take on level playing fields it wasn't exactly what our mandate said, It is more complex the number of issues we wanted have not been achieved uh, there was a bit of give and take there with uh, on stay dates and other issues but the core of what we wanted has been put in there also in terms of enforcement which was a crucial point for us uh, enforcement domestically as well by UK courts um, and then the final one is on the <laughs> uh, yes never praise a journalist in public you get a difficult <laughs> <ethical laughs> question <laughs> um, it's it's hard for me to to comment on you know I can only say look at the command paper or the Greenwich speech of Boris Johnson in February 2020 it was the start of the relationships on the future and what came out David Frost said, I realize this is a short-term adjustment cost for us as a country in Brexit. So he realized there were trade obstacles in what he was trying to negotiate. And, and he believed in that. So that's, that's basically the model he believed in. And he was Johnson's negotiator. So I, yeah, I. what I can say is that we never took the no-deal threat seriously. Well, we took them seriously, but it wouldn't change our mandate. Let's put it like that. And so we were focused on what we wanted and if we had and we agreed to revise northern irish protocol detailed very the book details that step by step how boris johnson in manchester tory party conference gave her a few extra things step by step we came to an understanding in exchange for for the consent vote by the northern irish legislative assembly members
1: okay we just passed (laughs) it, but you know there's a tradition in uh, certainly in british um political comment programs sort have of a jolly question at the end it's a, it's a serious question uh, <clears throat> as well as one that I think will make people sort of smile um, and actually although it comes from the vice chair of the European movement of the UK I suspect many on the brexit side would be interested in knowing this the answer to this question as well. do you think that negotiating the UK's re-entry into the EU, will be easier or harder than the negotiations with the UK to leave the
3: UK. <laughs> <laughs> but there's no ticking clock. There's no
1: ticking clock. That's <laughs> the answer to it. But, and? and.
3: <laughs> it's, I think first, and let's come back to the question from, from the gentleman up there. Um, when the letter came to us, for us Brexit was a reality. We turned the page. Regrettably, But we managed it. When I still follow, and I still follow UK media, I still keep reading about Remainers and Brexiter's.
1: It's a more powerful identity than Labour or Conservative, according to political science.
3: But, well, I I believe political science. I was once one by training, so (laughs) I'm still one, I guess. But for me, there seems to be first the, the necessary debate here on what that means. And, and get over that distinction that apparently is a strong identity, as you say. Because then, yeah, I think that's a precondition for any process to be healthy.
1: And Vicky, do, do you think if, if, stress mm. if the because you know both sides are thinking about this, whether you know those who want to ensure the UK is less likely to, and those who would like to rejoin, if such a thing were on the table, how do you think it would play out?
0: Well, uh, what we saw in the referendum itself is that economics didn't really play the big, the big part that we all hoped it would. But now economics is, is, is getting into the debate a bit more, because everyone can see what the implications of this have been. Now, of course, we had COVID, we had the energy, the, the war in Ukraine, what it meant for the energy uh, prices and, and so on. So you can't quite def, you know, separate, it. but there is a lot of evidence that we're suffering long-term uh, decline in the economy by comparison to others. So it really uh, would depend, therefore, you know, people's livelihoods, productivity, which has really suffered quite significantly already, uh, trade, so jobs and quality of jobs and pay for those jobs um, is something which I think might determine at the end of the day what people really think about being prepared to go through this process of rethinking, rejoining. And as I said, the polls are changing, there's no doubt that they are changing, um, whether they, there is enough, uh, there will be enough political will to do something about it. And whether, of course, how Europe would, would react. Because I read from your book that, as far as you're concerned, Europe is concerned, Brexit is done. Hmm. And you've got loads of other things to think about, rather hmm. than having to deal with those difficult Brits who make life you know, harder for you.
3: And General, we have nine countries already that want to join. That's true, another source oh, we of... Have
1: General de Gaulle, after all, got there ahead of everybody on that subject. Um, I think it's just also worth adding, that, though the polling has shifted substantially, people are still a bit <clears throat> about another referendum, if it came to that. They're much more sceptical about the horrors unleashed by the referendum, uh, or at least the, the sort of near cultural issue that I think that turned into. So... Uh, anyway, we'll see. Look, uh, thank you all for all your questions and those online. I'm sure sorry everybody online I didn't get to all your questions, but thank you all for joining us. There will now be an opportunity to buy a copy of the book and come up and have, a, have it signed, should you so desire. Uh, so I'd just like to thank uh, Vicky Price and Stefan de Rink and all of you for what's been a fascinating evening.
0: Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.